Hi, and welcome to the first understory for December. I'm one of the regular presenters of the show, Tom Wilson. Today we take a journey to South Beach in Fremantle for the Frio Tweed Run, a celebration of all things tweed and bicycle related. After this outing, I'll be talking with Chris Smythe from the Australian Conservation Foundation about the recently released report on last year's Montara oil spill. But first, let's keep things light to Fremantle. The London Tweed Run is a metropolitan bicycle ride with style. A few hundred chaps and ladies dressed up in their most dashing tweed suits, riding caps and plus fours included, make their way along a predetermined route through London each year. This year, as part of the Festival of Fremantle, WA staged its very own Tweed Run. I was there with my microphone. So I actually uh, rode here this morning uh, on my lovely maroon steed uh, through the centre of Fremantle. I got quite a few head turns. Did you uh, make your way through Beaconsfield Town on your, on your bicycle and get a few head turns? Uh, well, that's right. I, I, I came here and as I was crossing the lights at um, uh, Rockingham Road, I, I ran into a peloton of uh, lycra-clad cyclists and... Um, being the, uh, the cheery morning that it was, I gave them a loud what-ho and a wave. Um, unfortunately, I wasn't used to riding my, uh, my, my bike this morning and um, rather wobbled, uh, hit a curb and um, had to dismount rather rapidly. I, I think I perhaps... Uh, did, did you surmount the dangerous wobble, Samuel? Uh, well, I, I came off quite, quite okay. Um, the curb probably had more damage done to it than I. Uh, but the, uh, the cyclists that I was passing, I think they did not think too much of the tweed run. They thought, what a fool, perhaps. Well, the, the spirit of Geo-Vicwardianism has prevailed, and you've made your way here in one piece. I'm glad. I'm glad to see it. Well, I think I think we should more often take the uh, the dashing charm of uh, early uh, pre-war fashion to the streets of Fremantle. Would you agree with me? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I think it's a terrific idea. I think everyone should wear completely ridiculous, unsuitable clothing for this climate and sort of stroll around, being a bit hot and bothered, and. Um, but, you know, do anything that it requires to, uh, to recover from that, which basically means not doing anything at all. And perhaps having a refreshing beverage in the shade? Oh, well, I would hope so. I would hope so. I'm looking forward to arriving at Norfolk Lane and uh, sitting down with a gin and tonic. Yeah, my name's Lucky. I'm one of the organisers for the Fremantle Tweed Run. OK, and uh, are you having a good day? It's fantastic. We're getting such a great turnout. It's better than we could have possibly hoped for. <laughs> There's uh, quite a few people here right now. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's looking, I'm guessing, between 150, about. Yeah. I heard there was over 200 registrations, though. Well, there's over 200 numbers. They're not all quite filled yet, but I think we'll get about 200 all up, which is fantastic. So people are still uh, filtering in onto yeah, the green yeah, here we're down few, in South few, Beach and Fremantle. Getting a few late arrivals, but yes. Splendid pipe and, and moustache. I'm very impressed. You've been uh, working on it for a few weeks. I uh, More than a few weeks, I must confess. I've been growing this mower for about two months now. <laughs> <laughs> well, great things take time to mature. So uh, in the background, we've got some Haydn playing, and uh, everyone's having a great time. Can you tell me about what inspired you to do the Frio Tweed Run to, to make this happen? 
Well, uh, my sister and I are in the process of starting an organisation called Dismantle, and we're trying to start a community bike recycling workshop in Fremantle. It's essentially a community space where people can come, recycle bikes, and we'll run programs out of it as well. So that's our, that's our long-term goal. And we so, so how would this work? I could, I could turn up, and if I didn't have much money, buy an old bike that you'd re- refitted? Yeah, there's options. You could buy an old bike, or you could become a member, and then you could earn an old bike by working on other bikes and just helping out around the workshop. You'd accrue hours and then you could trade those hours in for parts or bikes and then you could use our workshop to put it all together. This sounds like you're subverting capitalism, my dear fellow. It's true, it's true. No, we're not that big on money. We want bikes to be accessible to anybody. So if you don't have any cash, you can come on down and, and earn yourself a bike. Oh, that's a great idea. And uh, any any progress in getting the workshop off the ground? Have you had any ideas of where you'd base it or offers for the workshop? Well, not not as yet. We've only been working on it a couple of months. So this is kind of... The Tweed Run today was just supposed to be a big display of bike love in Fremantle. This is our first major event to raise awareness for what we're doing. And we're hoping from this big show of support we can go forward and apply for some grants and start looking at venues. So is this just about... Is Dismantle... And what's your website again? Dismantle.org.au? Just to get a little plug in there. So is dismantle.org.au just about bikes? Is it just about bike people who love bikes? Or is there more to it? Well, at this stage, it's about bikes. Once we get started, we're hoping that, you know, with all these recycled parts coming in and a vibrant community centre, we can run creative arts programs. We can run innovative programs for the inventors out there who want to create things out of bike parts. I'm in the process of discussing a program at the moment that will create uh, three-wheeled bikes for disabled people with... Uh, what, how do you call them? I'm trying to think of the correct word. Tricycles. Tricycles, that's exactly right. So there, there's all sorts of options. Like This is just the beginning and we're hoping it's going to expand into a huge community centre. So there's a, a bit of a message of environmental sustainability as well as yeah. a love of all things tweed? Absolutely. It's all about, yeah, it's, it's obviously, you know, tick so many boxes for the environment, but then you can go through it. There's health, there's all sorts of things. There's active citizenship, you know, people who are on bikes are more likely to care about the community, get involved in the community. And, yeah, we're just hoping it'll really flow on and bring a lot of people to, together in Fremantle. OK, well, uh, later in the week I'll be talking with the organiser of the London Tweed Run, so it'll be interesting to uh, share notes. Thanks, thanks for being on Understory. No problem at all. Pleasure. After talking with Lockie, the brains behind the Tweed Run, I just decided to do the Tweed Run myself with microphone in hand. So as uh, you're about to hear... Uh, this wasn't a very safe idea. I almost fell off my bike. Anyway, uh, later in this piece, you'll hear the custom-built sound system of uh, my friend James Clarkson. He's mounted this uh, this stereo onto a cargo bike uh, with a with a car battery. It's pretty ingenious. You'll hear it in, in a minute. <laughs> the thrills and the spills of life on a bicycle. Uh, it's not often I take the bike out for a, a run and just enjoy the sheer pleasure of the cycle. <laughs> Should do it more often. Something didn't work all along? The music? Oh, did Oh, yeah. Yeah, we've been cycling alongside James while the music has been playing the whole time. It's been great. <laughs> oh yes, hello! Is it? No. <laughs> oh, Chattanooga Chichu. Lindy Hop, another occasion. We feel like cheaters because we don't have bikes.
Yeah. Hey, you're integral. It's an x-ray, I say. Why are they going now? It's an x-ray cafe. It's just, just up this street. And we're going to go in the whole lane. slightly more weighty issue. In July of this year, 2010, the ABC Radio National Program Background Briefing did a piece on the Montara oil spill of last year. It was called The Spilling Fields, an obvious pun on the killing field sites in Cambodia where huge numbers of people were killed by the Khmer Rouge in the 70s. The violence in connotation was well intended. The Montara oil spill having a devastating impact on many uh, non-human lives around the oil well. And the authorities involved in both events weren't properly accountable for their actions. Last week, Resource Minister Martin Ferguson finally released the report commissioned into the disaster. He's been sitting on it for months. Chris Smythe, Marine Campaign Coordinator for the Australian Conservation Foundation, joins me on the phone to discuss this report. Last week, the federal government released the report of the inquiry into the Montara Wellhead platform disaster, which uh, occurred in August uh, last year, and that's when the Montara wellhead blew out and spilled and spewed oil throughout the Timor Sea and up off the Kimberley coast for 74 days before it was actually finally capped. And that spill spread not only through Australia's oceans, but right across into to the coast of East Timor. And the East Timorese fishers and seaweed farmers were aghast at the effects, and they, uh, the Indonesian government is actually... Uh, suing the the company responsible for the Montara wellhead platform uh, for compensation. So, so it actually had a, a, a bit of an impact on the ecosystem up there? Well, we th- certainly it's been very hard to determine how much impact, and that's one of the key findings in the report released last week, was that uh, because the monitoring system was not put in place before the disaster and even after the disaster, there was really nothing nothing to any great extent done about monitoring, we'll never know the full impact of this particular oil spill. And that's something I think quite disturbing that uh, a major inquiry has found that in the 21st century we're not doing enough monitoring to really understand what happens when these sorts of disasters take place. Yeah, I think there was a uh, episode of background briefing on Radio National that came out in July that I listened to uh, that uh, reported on, on this issue and, and they, they did say that uh, it was a very hurried uh, job of getting some researchers up there kind of way after the facts to do a bit of monitoring. And, uh, yeah, they did it the, about, the pressure of the about media. a week and in a fairly limited uh, geographical area, sort of up, uh, sort of in the, the western corner of the uh, the spill area. And, I mean, the Worldwide Fund for Nature went up there as well and did a, a bit of a cruise, and they certainly uh, were one of the first to really start doing some monitoring. But it really shouldn't be up to the community to do these things. It should be the responsibility of the companies involved, but also the government to ensure that the companies do it properly. And clearly, in this case, the report of the inquiry found that, uh, in a damning way, the that the the company running the the operation PTTPAA, which is a Thai-based company, uh, really failed to establish sensible oil field standards, and the regulator, the Northern Territory Department of Resources. Uh, was not a sufficiently diligent regulator. 
well, and that there was very, very much a too comfortable relationship between the two. Before we get into that, do you mind if we just backtrack? Um, so the the oil well spilled for what was it, ten weeks? Seventy-four days. Seventy-four and days. But est- estimates were sort of two to four hundred barrels a day, but some people put it much higher. And again, it's it's inconclusive as to what the actual amount was. And so again, we don't know uh, just how much oil was spilled into the environment. We had a much better idea with the, the Gulf spill we saw off the, in the Gulf of Mexico because it was live on the internet 24-7. But uh, here we just didn't really know much about how much oil was being spilled. And uh, What do you think uh, the difference was there in the difference in coverage between America and Australia and the two big oil well, spills recently? Well, the big, the big issue, the big difference was where uh, the Gulf spill took place. Basically, mm. you off Florida coast, off the Louisiana coast, large populations, large fishing industries and so on, large tourism industries, all based, all dependent on the quality of the marine environment in the Gulf. In Timor Sea, it's a long way from anywhere in terms of the populations of Australia. And so the, there were very few coastal communities there and limited industries up there other than uh, the petroleum industry. But there, there and, were coastal communities in Timor and Indonesia. Yes, and they certainly... Uh, discovered the impacts of the oil spill but it was again i guess out of sight out of mind it was one of those things was difficult until people started to get some reports out of there as to what was going on that the media took some interest but that was one of the big problems and one of the things which the reporters also said was that the communications to the public was very very poor that people weren't really given enough information about what was going on there because uh, as you said before there was limited monitoring done and uh, we really didn't get a really good handle on what sort of impacts was having. Certainly there were whales and dolphins seen travelling through the area, there were seabirds, there were fish and so on, but again we don't know the effect. And once the dispersant was applied, that dispersant takes the oil under the surface into the water column, and again we don't really know what impacts that build-up of oil in the water column is going to have in the long term. So it gets into the food chain, uh, travel through the system, through the currents, and again, we just don't know. So a lot of the impacts, one, we'll, we'll never find out, but two, could be quite extensive because of the way those ocean systems work up there. So this uh, report on the on the big oil spill in the Timor Sea uh, came into the hands of uh, Resource Minister Martin Ferguson back in June, is that correct? Yes, he's had it for five months. So we've heard and, nothing of it for five months. And all that time, he's also been out there releasing a new acreage, which is basically what they do is they they advertise to the industry whether they'd like to bid for certain areas of the oceans. The, the operators of the oil companies bid for those places and they were, those the bids closed on the 13th of November, but even during the time of the spill, the minister was still continuing to release areas for the, ocean, for the offshore petroleum production and exploration whilst this inquiry was going on. And it's really something which has been very concerning to environment groups and the community more generally is that we're still trying to resolve the marine planning process which will establish marine protected areas and we really should have those in place before we continue to expand the petroleum industry, especially with the risks which this disaster has shown and also the Gulf spill disaster. The industry has often claimed that it's relatively benign in terms of the marine environment, but I think these two instances have shown people that, hello, we've got a bit of a risk here in terms of the expansion of the industry. And people have been indicating it could be expanding seven times in the next 20 years. So it's a big, a big expansion. A lot of that's going to be off the West Australian coast, a lot of it up in the northwest area. And in the northwest area, it's a remarkable marine environment. 
a supermarine highway where migratory species travel through there. You've got corals, you've got wonderful marine environments, and uh, this sort of expansion industry nearly needs to be done in a much better, much stronger regulatory framework, which we don't have at the moment. But that's something else that the report has said that it's a very weak system. It's also a very inconsistent and duplicative system. We've got state management, we've got federal management, we've got the sort of state waters, Commonwealth waters, this sort of confusion between the two areas. We've really got to resolve those kind of things if we want to really look after our oceans better, not just in terms of offshore petroleum, but in terms of fisheries, in terms of shipping, in terms of tourism and so on. We've really got to get a handle on how we actually look after the place. So it wasn't just the, uh, was it Thai-based owners of the... Uh the wellhead that yes, were to, well, that actually, were to once blame the, for uh, the spill started, uh, the actual the company uh, was able to purchase some other oil interests in up that part of the world uh, from other companies, and so it was actually expanding its interests while the oil spill was going on. And was and once the oil spill was capped, they were still able to have approvals through the government to have these sorts of transfers of ownership take place. And which, now, which we, government department was responsible for this? What's that? Which government department was responsible uh, for that? Basically, that, that, uh, that is the... Well, basically, the Department of Resources, which is Martin Ferguson's department, basically oversights the whole industry. But they delegate responsibility to state agencies. And, uh, but eventually, when the, um, the PTTEP purchased some more interests, uh, it eventually also went through the Foreign Investment Review Board. So different parts of the government had some interest in that particular process. But our view is that PTDP had shown that it wasn't particularly capable of managing properly the Montara wellhead platform. The ministers had this report for a very long time. Um, certainly during the incident and afterwards, I'm sure government agents and so on would have realised that there were some real problems associated with the site. And to actually encourage the or to enable the company to expand its operations seemed very odd. Mm, sounds pretty embarrassing for Martin Ferguson. Okay, well, thanks very much. Uh, no, thanks very much, Tom. That was Chris Smythe, uh, Marine Campaign Coordinator for ACF. That's it for another week of Understory. Sorry for some technical difficulties getting hold of the podcast of the show recently. They're now fixed, and the show is available by following the prompts on the RTR website. See you next time. Yeah.